Greatness is a transitory experience. It is never consistent. It depends in part upon the myth-making imagination of humankind. The person who experiences greatness must have a feeling for the myth he is in. He must reflect what is projected upon him, and he must have a strong sense of the sardonic. This is what uncouples him from his belief in his own pretensions. The sardonic is all that permits him to move within himself. Without this quality, even occasional greatness will destroy a man. Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is season seven, episode three, The Banquet, covering book one, Dune, chapters 13 to 16. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge on this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I have only read up to this part. My name is Talia. I've read the entire Dune series, albeit a long time ago, and I am rereading along with the podcast and have also seen the movie, although nothing we discuss today will be in the movie. My name is Priya, and I have also only read up to this part, and I have seen the recent movie. My name is Amin, and I have only read up to this part as well, and I have seen uh, the recent movie, and a while ago I had also seen the David Lynch version which I don't entirely recall. All right. And so we did have some follow-up, and I think it's from Talia? Yeah, sure. Just to expound on what I said in the intro, um, this is the banquet scene. Um, You may also remember it if you've read it as the very awkward dinner party scene. There's a lot of discussion about this in online communities and probably real-life communities just because it's so much subtext. So we don't delve all the way into that, especially in the summary, but uh, we can link a Reddit post for people who take a pretty good um, deep dive into it. And it's pretty much spoiler-free. It says spoilers, but it's only for the chapter itself. And as I said, this scene is not in, I think, any of the movies, certainly not in the 2021. I mean, do you want to take us to the new characters? The new characters we're introduced to in this section are Lingar Butte, a water shipper, Asmar Tuek, who's referred to as Tuek, uh, who is a smuggler who controls fast ships for a price. There's the banker, who's an agent with the Gaiety Prime speech pattern and, finan- and financial advisor to the Water Peddlers Union. Uh, still suit manufacturer colluding with the guild banker and the still suit manufacturer's daughter, who was brought along to aggrandize the banker and seduce Paul. Which one was... Uh... Had the stupid nickname Susu. Was that the that was the the daughter, right? Uh, no, the daughter cued that up for the banker. Was it the banker or the water shipper? It was the banker because they uh, the banker says like, oh, well, I'm the financial advisor to the water peddlers union, so they call me Susu. Like that. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. Okay, let's jump into the summary. Sure. Uh, Howitt delivers two pieces of information to the Duke. First, he relays a Harkonnen note confirming what Mapes revealed. There is a betrayer inside the House Atreides, someone close to the Duke. The Mentat suspects the Lady Jessica. Secondly, he delivers a film clip analysis of the Fremen religion, recalling that when they arrived on planet, the Fremen shouted the term Mahdi at Paul. The term follows a messiah tradition about the child of a Bene Gesserit. We flash to Paul watching the clip himself, but the Duke chooses to instead focus on Hawat's other message. He confides in his son that he does not, and has never doubted, Jessica but will act as if he does. He hopes to trick his enemies into believing they have made him turn against her. He asks Paul to tell his mother if he is unable to. Paul hears the unspoken train of thought. The Duke will be dead before he can reveal the truth himself. 
We also learned that the spice melange, when ingested, acts as natural immunity to common poisons. In the Great Hall, the Duke abolishes another water-heavy tradition of sloshing water on the floor and rebukes a water shipper to diversify his portfolio as water will one day be common. Jessica diplomatically smooths the incident by stating their ambition to gentle the climate of Arrakis. This statement catches the attention of Kynes, the ecologist, who seems to speak to Jessica in code. While making rousing speeches to his officers, the Duke mystifyingly smashes his own water on the floor, impelling his company to follow. All follow suit, but Kynes cheerfully secrets away the water into a hidden flagon. Kynes is not the only one with hidden talents. Jessica calls upon her espionage training and detects linguistic idiolects in the guild banker that out him as a Harkonnen agent, throwing into jeopardy the neutrality of the Emperor's guild. Paul catches on to something amiss, and decides to verbally, and somewhat physically, joust with the banker. Paul's challenge to the banker emerges subtle alliances, with the banker and his companion on one side, and the ship smuggler, the water shipper, and the ecologist on the other. The banker sneers that the Fremen drink blood to survive in the desert. Kynes coolly responds that the desert Fremen use all the water in a man's body. At this point, the Duke also catches on to what Jessica and Paul have respectively noted, that Kynes' attitude changed when they spoke of terraforming Arrakis. Paul assumes his father's seat at the table and draws out the tensions in the room, as the banker and the smuggler have locked horns about which of them have water control, and Kynes is concealing his own knowledge of water. Kynes intervenes before violence breaks out, and no one is certain that it would have, least of all Paul himself. But nevertheless, the dinner party draws to a close. All right. So maybe we just start with the uh, first impressions of, of this section. Um, I can start since I'm fresh to it. <laughs> yeah, the the, awkward, the dinner scene was really awkward. Uh, I'm surprised that like, it's such like, a famous scene and like so so loved. I mean, it's, it was fine. But it just kind of struck me as like kind of just drawn out. I, I, was, I was actually more interested in like the first part where they, they actually go out and they talk about the still suits and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually like, t- and like the, the Duke, it seems like really in control, right? He's like taking the, he's like flying the helicopter or the plane or whatever it is. He's like trying to ingratiate himself to uh, his troops by like, they, they ask like, well, who gets the bonus for spotting the worm? You know, because <laughs> the, the Duke did it. And Duke's like, you guys just split it up. Right. And then like, he was really concerned about like losing the the people, you know, saving the people off of the, the spice miner uh, and then later on, like, yeah, like you mentioned in the, the, the dinner party, like he, he gets away the tradition of uh, the wasting the water. I, don't, I still don't get why he like dropped the water on the floor after that. I, mean, I guess we can talk about that later. Right. Like he saved yeah. the guys in the water in the spice trawler. And that was like breaking tradition because I think before yeah. it's been all about profit. And then he has this whole performance with the water. Definitely a lot about traditions and bucking them. Yeah. But it seems like he, I mean, like, I think there's like a passage in the book that he like, want, that Kynes even like was starting to like warm up to him, right? He's like, oh, I think I like this guy. Um, <laughs> so like, he's like building alliances with the Fremen, right? So that's, I mean, that, that's what it seems like to me. Seems, so he seems like he's, you asked the question last episode, like if you think he's doing a good job. And I think like this reinforces that he is, um, you know, he's really trying to uh, like win people over to his side through like his actions and not treat him like the, the Harkonnen did. To me, like the first part of this this section was was more interesting than the second part. And that second part was not interesting, but uh, that that's cool. how I felt. I, I I agree with that, Dan. But you you just said something and um made me think. So you said that he's you know doing these things to try to win people over to his side. Do you think he's doing those things 
to do that? Or do you think that's just who he is and that attracts people? I mean, my, my impression is that he's like, he's like establishing himself on this planet, right. As like the ruler. And like, he thinks he won't be able to do it without like the native population liking, cause like, it seemed like the Harkonnen ruled out of fear and, and force maybe, right. Mm -hmm. Like that's the impression I get that like, they're like, that beat him down. Right. You know, they're begging for water, you know, they get like the, the rings of a towel, like that's the most that they'll get. But, um, you know, Leto is trying to lead by, by more example and like being like a real leader and, you know, saving the people and giving them money and, you know, saying, hey, you guys can have water whenever we're eating. You guys can come and get water. Well, don't you think, not to jump in too much, it just reminds me of the quote that Priya read at the top of the episode, like the sense of the sardonic. Because I feel like, I mean, I think the Duke is a good person and also is likable because he attributes it all to like, well, I have a good propaganda core. You know, I have mm. a good campaign on my behalf. He's a bit sardonic and about like he doesn't take himself that seriously but he does have a propaganda and he even talks about like paul it's really important that we distribute film and like i have spice residue we're producing our own film clips and then he remarks like how will the people know how great i am unless i tell them but he also puts in the work like he doesn't just say you should love me he does suffer through this dinner party yeah um, <laughs> He says it and he advertises. That's that was my take on it, but I I could definitely be wrong. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes sense. I I guess I was thinking to where the sandworm was going to attack, and he like saved all those people. I got the sense that even if no one was there watching him, that still would have been his disposition. Mm -hmm. So I, I but but I agree. I I do think some of it is marketing or. You know, and and not not in a cynical way, but some yeah. of it is is for appearances, it's and called some of it is, <laughs> and some yeah. of it is who he is. So, yeah, yeah, I was just curious. So I was kind of extremely um, thrown when he just dumps the water onto the floor because um, it's in stark contradiction to him ending that tradition of um, having the water that's fallen onto the floor being soaked up with uh, rags and then that being given to the beggars. Um, because when he stops that tradition, you think he's being very... Um, mm -hmm. Like magnanimous. And very gracious to um, the beggars and understanding of their need of water because he's like, oh, any beggar who comes during this time will get a full full cup of water. And then at the, in just moments later, I mean, in, in terms of um, within that same night, rather, he just drops water onto the floor. It's not even like water that has like cleansed people's hands. It's like perfectly good, clean water. And yeah. I just feel like it, that it's one of those moments that shows us that like him, despite his his desire and his hope to do to do well, he has certain he has moments where he's not that great of a character and perhaps not um not as noble as he would want to be yeah that definitely threw me especially because the whole chapter and the whole book so far is constantly um telling us how important and sacred water is just the act of doing something like that seems very disrespectful to the place that he has constantly been up to this point trying to respect yeah and i think all the guests were even like thrown by it too right everyone's like uh so do we need to do that too and even that that one that the the scene of that one guy like pouring it in and then this jacket uh that was yeah that was my funny. favorite part about that scene is that they said like 
kind of completely unembarrassed, just utterly unembarrassed when everyone else who's like not native to the planet is like more moved by politics. Like, oh, okay, the Duke did it, so I have to do it. And Kynes mm-hmm. is like, water? I'm not going to throw that away, no matter what. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be ashamed of it either. So that was, I think, a, a very interesting... I think there were actually a couple funny notes in this chapter, which I didn't get until my reread, but that was one of them. I mean, Kynes has the most um, extreme take or extreme language, rather, surrounding the waste of water. Like at one point when Paul asks if there are plants down in the desert, he refers to plants as, as I think, water stealers. Oh, that they're like predatory or they're like yeah. <laughs> in competition. With the exactly and um there there's so much language that he uses um he he calls uh paul and the duke water f- they have they have water fat, fat flesh. flesh oh and yeah they're gluttonous yeah simply from for being well hydrated they're gluttonous in in his eyes I also like the the one anecdote of when Paul like mentioned someone was drowned. They're like, "What? <laughs> like mm-hmm. they died because yeah. of too much water?" <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> and then and then Paul later has to explain like drowning is when you are immersed in water. Yeah. <laughs> and then a boat is a, yeah, it's like a out vessel. of science fiction. Like, yeah, oh, what a cool thing to invent. <laughs> <laughs> a boat travels upon a body of water and like these people's minds are just blown that bodies of water exist for boats to travel upon. <laughs> I think also, but I think one thing that is also interesting about this entire section was that kind of the, in the beginning of the section, um, they're talking about uh, when Gurney gives him, gives Lido the note uh, that he found on the, 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 the Harkonnen guy that they, they found. Yeah. The oh, the Howitt? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he, he gives him that note. And so, like, that puts it in his mind that, like, oh, like, his his uh, his consort, mm-hmm. Jessica, is going to betray him. It's like, now it's, like, all those things, like, in motion of, like, trying to kind of show that he, or to pretend he doesn't know, but kind of give hints. I don't know. Like, the the whole subtext around, like, all of the this whole chapter was, what that do you part think was of their very awkward dinner party interaction. She, like, wears a dress that he likes just to annoy him and she's yeah. he's like oh it's good that she's frowning even though it makes her look ugly because it will <laughs> stir up rumors that we're actually fighting yeah i mean like all that stuff and like when uh he mentions the paul that he's telling it like you know mm-hmm. it's a super secret but like he needs to tell paul because he knows that it's not her but he wants her to eventually know and says something in case something happens to her that he he knew all along that it wasn't her uh yeah that was really, that was really yeah. good I wonder if that's because it's already been revealed that like Jessica doesn't have this perfect truth sense. She can't always tell when someone's lying and um, Paul, I think, can or like can more than she can. Maybe going along with that is that she doesn't have the perfect ability to deceive either. So if she did know, she wouldn't be able to put on, you know, quite the same act. Yeah, I think he says as much that, you know, like she wouldn't um, be able to. Uh, like it w- might not might not be convincing, right? If she was telling that lie. Yeah, we haven't really seen it on display. I think we've mostly seen Jessica like discovering other people's deception, not Jessica trying to deceive anyone. So, yeah, I guess we only have his word. As an aside, I also thought um, there's this one character who's constantly um, asking for recipes. I feel like he was plucked <laughs> straight out of <laughs> Foundation. Yeah, that was totally a too. character that Asimov would would throw <laughs> into totally a random dinner party. 
Yeah. You must. I must have the I recipe. Must. And Jessica, she yeah. was like, I'll lead to it that you get the recipe. It's so yeah. Bartleby the Scrivener, too. It's so formal. Like, oh, I must have this. I must have that. <laughs> what is this? Wine? I must have that, too. Right. Talia, yeah. Talia, you can spoil this for us. Does Does this character come back later? <laughs> He's the hero. It, no, I'm serious. Like, is, is this a plot point that this is not a plot point? To? Oh, okay. Oh, I've never seen this person again. In in the in the end, he um he throws his own dinner party and he <laughs> he makes all the recipes by hand himself. Exactly, right. I would love that. Recipes. If yeah. only Brian Herbert had written something as beautiful as that, I would have read the spinoffs. <laughs> <laughs> not too late for you two, though. I mean, and uh, Priya, you guys should uh, spin that off. Once at the end of the season, uh, we can start writing some fanfic. <laughs> it writes itself. Yeah, there's definitely more exposition um, of the Fremen religion, and I think that's really interesting to me. And I wonder if it's sort of intentional that the character who's sort of commanding in this section, the Duke, sort of like skirts away from that and is like, "No, I'm going to focus on this plot and the betrayer and my consort." Uh, Whereas Paul definitely is curious and obviously Hawat is collecting this. For me, like that was the most imp- interesting and, I don't know, seductive part of beginning to read Dune is wondering what's going to happen with this prophecy and this religion. I think for me, I'm not super into the religious and um, like prophecy part of stuff. I'm more into like the, yeah, just the the political stuff, but, mm-hmm. you know, between between the groups and like, um, you know, like the 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 fact that there's all these Harkonnen spies and like they need to like find them out and like um, you know, like the they they said the Harkonnen guys uh, stole the the carryall uh, mm-hmm. that was that was going to save the people from the thing, and then they found him and you know, probably ex- and like they keep saying over and over we're gonna and they're gonna we're gonna kill all the Harkonnen people on here, which is also pretty bold, <laughs> like you know, like uh, they're yeah. all the same kind of a little bit out of character, like like the dude who's gonna find him is gonna kill him, like not take care of him or you know deport him or whatever but like oh, it's gonna kill him set kinds on him he could do it yeah. and ice someone or the arrakis equivalent of ice there's another part too uh that uh, that that's st- that stuck in my mind when um i think when paul was talking to to kinds later on uh asking mm-hmm. like if there's enough water on the planet and kinds is like uh maybe but like paul find out you know knew he was lying um and there's there's just I, I think like last time we talked about like the the weird the weird phenomena of like drilling and like some water coming out and then stopping uh so there's definitely more going on to like the short supply of water on this planet um then i'm i'm sure we'll find out more about that like it seems like more uh, someone's controlling it somehow the un, you know uh, un, unnaturally like something is happening like that people are actually like in on purpose like uh, short supplying the water so they you know they can control it same as like the spice right they're shorting the market they're shorting yeah it. right <laughs> like intentionally you know inflating demand because they're they're like holding back the water definitely something fishy is going on and i tried to write about it this way in this in the summary but it's like to me it went down in tears like jessica first notices something and then paul notices something and then finally the Duke notices something and none of them are quite able to suss it out in, you know, in that scene. But they're definitely all on the same page, especially by the end. That Like there's more than meets the eye. Like Kynes turns to Jessica and says, you know, do you bring the shortening of the way? 
And she says that that translates to Kwisatz Haderach, but they never get a chance to talk about it. If you guys remember, I started, um, or rather I mentioned last episode that I felt like Jessica was sort of like the star of the, uh, the chapters that we read in that section. And in this one, I really feel like Paul is because I feel like we get a deeper sense of um, his sense of morality and also his truth sense and his um, his wisdom in a sense too, because I, I was just constantly um, like tuned into the, the, the comments and observations he, that he had to make in any given scenario. And it's like Kynes is there to remind you like, oh, this, this, this kid has, is asking the more adult questions and uh, seems to have like a wisdom about him that the adults do not have. And one of the things that he says that fascinated me um, also kind of to piggyback off the topic of like this uh, sort of contrived uh, scarcity of water uh, that seems to be suggested is when someone talked, uh, it was the Duke who said, why don't, why don't you guys just get rid of the, the worms? Haven't you guys thought of a way to get rid of the worms? Like this, I, I believe it's almost like after, I, I believe it was after um, Kynes explains that like, there is really no way to destroy a sandworm and the way that you can destroy one is like doesn't it involve like placing explosives on like each individual ring on its body yeah um, hmm. and then he's like oh well why haven't you guys figured out how to destroy all of them and then paul paul has this insight that the the worms are connected to the spice and he feels that if the worms didn't exist, maybe the spice wouldn't exist either, mm. which was fascinating to me that this this force of nature that um, that stands in the way of extracting all the spice you could ever extract is also kind of possibly maybe the reason why the spice is there in the first place. So I don't know. That was a fascinating idea to me. Speaking about the contrived scarcity, if you remember at the very end of the chapter, uh, I think it's the Duke is pushing kinds like, well, what does stand in the way? Like you talk about all these theories, like the law of the minimum and that which is the most scarce, you know, controls the growth. And he's like, no, brass tacks. What do I need to terraform this planet? And kinds actually produces a number. And uh, he actually says the number is like 3%. If 3% of the plants can be, you know, changed in some meaningful way, and that tantalizing number is like cut off, but it reminded me, especially in the reread of the 3.5% rule. Do you know it or what our audience or should I just uh, give Please a explain. overview? Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's difficult to prove, but the 3.5% rule posits that no government can stand up to that share of the population mobilizing against it. Hmm. So put another way, a revolution succeeds if 3.5% of the population are for, you know, revolution for change. Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't know about that. Asked a classroom to estimate how much of a population is needed for a revolution, you'd get numbers above 50%. But Right. I would, I would yeah. guess much higher than that number as well. Uh, but it does seem to indicate that there's this really, really small threshold that needs to be reached, but there's some reason we're not there yet. Interesting. Look forward to the 3.5% rule. But the other thing it brought up to me was 
when you were talking about the worms and the spice and some kind of relationship, slight tangent just to something we discovered in this <laughs> chapter, uh, that the, you know, ingesting the spice grants immunity. Immunity or immunity to like, what? Immunity to poisons. Oh, yeah. So I think that one of the first thoughts that you would have, like certainly that I would have is like personal safety, relief, like, oh, if I'm eating the spice, I'm safe from assassination. Like the person cannot be, you know, poisoned. And what we actually hear from the Duke, like this next step from a seasoned leader is just like, yeah, man, like we can't kill off large swaths of the population this way. Like that was an option for us on Caladan, but not that we were going to do it, but just heads up, we can't do it here. What's even more fascinating to me is that his conclusion when he says how difficult it would be to to poison people, he yeah. says, Arrakis makes us moral, moral and, ethical. and ethical. Exactly. So again, that's just a very funny take on like, hey, you're going to live longer if you take this and you're going to be immune from poison. You're like, oh, drat, this has political implications. <laughs> <laughs> It just immediately made made me think of people who believe themselves to be moral and ethical because they truly they have their hands tied as to prevent them to from doing really immoral and unethical things. But because they are physically restrained from doing these things, they consider themselves moral and ethical. Um, That's not true morality or ethics. Right. When you aren't. Right. When you're not doing something bad because you literally cannot do it. (laughs) Well, the Duke says to hold Arrakis, one is faced with decisions that may cost one his self-respect. So he has to think about these things. And I think that's something that he would prefer to never have to think about. (laughs) Right. And I think that that kind of um, ties in a little bit to uh, the quote that we started off with, which is that um, your greatness is a thing that is subject to change, whatever you consider greatness to be. If you consider yourself to be great because you are a moral and ethical person, that may not be true in all circumstances and all scenarios. And that may be subject to change dependent on the circumstances. And I guess um, self-awareness is what will keep you sort of sane in such circumstances. When you said that you were more interested in the politics than the religion, uh, I was reflecting on my notes because what interested me was the relationship that we see like more and more, but especially in this chapter that even the political statements are reminiscent of religious doctrine. Um, Like the emergence of moral decay. um, The Duke says, I am tired. I'm morally tired. The melancholy degeneration of the great houses has afflicted me at last, perhaps. And we were such strong people once. And, that almost, I mean, to me, that sounds like both a religious speech and also like you could cut that into a political stump speech. Like, oh, we used to be so great. We used to be so strong because both have this story of moral decay that heralds a changing world order and of that order being prognosticated by this state of wickedness or poverty or you know immigrants taking your jobs or whatever your state of wickedness is and i did pull a couple of quotes if it's not vivid enough in my summation probably going to throw the actual scripture numbers in the show notes so i don't have to save them here but yeah like the term salt of the earth you may have heard that before in like a work meeting, if you're 
going for bonus. You've probably traced it back to a disciple in the New Testament. But the full chapter, it reads, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. And again, in another testament of Jesus Christ that states that like this Messiah, this Mahdi, it usually comes in a period of apostasy and melancholy degeneration. And that states the Nephite record will come forth in a day of wickedness, degeneracy, and apostasy. So I saw everything here building up to this legend that the Fremen seem to have about Paul. And they're all really feeding into it. And no one can seem to uh, skirt it. Like the Missionaria Protectivia has done its work. It feels like just by being there, they're fulfilling a prophecy. They're not even necessarily taking these steps actively. But I think Paul is also doing stuff that like um, maybe like on purpose or like by accident, like fulfilling the prophecies that they have. Like when, mm -hmm. um, and every time he does anything, everyone's like, oh, like he's fulfilling this prophecy, this prophecy, like the still suit thing. Like he just knew how to put it on. Yeah, like they'll know your ways as if they're your own. They'll share your ambitions because, right. yeah, it feels like the Bene Gesserits wrote this prophecy and then made people this way. Yeah, any any stories, uh, books that have uh, this emphasis on prophecy always fascinate me because um, prophecy is like the oldest theme, um, one of the oldest themes mm -hmm. that we find in literature. And so often we find with prophecies that if they come true, they come true more so because of a belief in them versus the fact that they actually influence the events to come true, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like the, the, the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, if you look for, for signs, you'll find them in anything, it seems like, hey, he wore his suit the right way. He has to be the, <laughs> he has to be the guy. Um <laughs> But then Paul also has this way, and I think it stems from his intuition of making it everyone feel around him like he has a wisdom that is far beyond his years and um, that he is always clued into something that no one else in the room is. And that's probably true because of his um, Benny Jesuit uh, upbringing. So also his dad's um, training, though. His dad says, "I right. need to cultivate this air of bravura. Like it's not. I need to be the best and the True. most sharp and the smartest. It's like I need to make people think that I am. That's the most important thing." Right. Like the, going back to the quote again, how will people ever know how great I am unless I tell them how great I am? So, <laughs> I in, in in his own way, Paul sort of seems to do the same thing, even though a lot of that what he says comes in him. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So do you, what, what do you think? Do you think he's actually fulfilling the prophecy or you think they're shoehorning the prophecy into what he's doing? Do you have a feeling one way or the other? I think it's important not to forget that we haven't had any interaction with Fremen. Like it's all yep. people telling you the things that the Fremen say and do. Hmm. So well, more we've had a couple, right? I mean, like we've had, we've had a few around. Ever like two in the same room though? Uh... Is Kynes not a Fremen? I think he is, right? He is, I thought. It feels yeah. like everyone sort of pretends no. he's not. Yeah, I thought he was not either. I thought he understood the Fremen and he and he like wanted to be a Fremen, but not. It looks like a duck. It one. walks like a he... duck. It kills people like a duck. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, this time it's not an official duck, I don't think. 
didn't didn't someone at the dinner party actually sort of like accuse him of being a fremen or like just oh like he's a fremen like they said it kind of sort of disparagingly yeah i mean i sort of assumed that he was i thought they already spent too much time with the fremen hmm. Hmm. yeah like he spends so much time with the fremen he's basically a fremen yeah that's why yeah that might be true but i don't think he's he is a fremen but you are right. There have been no interactions with Fremen in their natural environment so far. And I think that that's why um, I agreed. I agree with Dan um, when you said that you found the part where they actually go out into the environment more interesting. And I, I felt the same way because this is their first real interaction with the environment. And, um, of course, witnessing the the way that the the sandworms can pretty much like just swallow everything in their path that part totally fascinated me along with this interplay between Paul and Kynes where Kynes is constantly um recollecting these fremen sayings that would indicate to him that Paul is the messiah that that they refer to so I did find the quote in the interim um the quote is from the banker saying you've associated so long with fremen that you've lost all sensibilities so doesn't really come down one way or the other this may be a dumb question but talia can you explain the difference between fremen and just the regular natives because they all seem to have the blue eyes right um so the blue eyes are just a byproduct of all that spice Okay, so everyone who lives on Arrakis, who is a native to Arrakis, has the blue eyes, not just the Fremen. Um, are there natives that we've encountered who are not Fremen? Well, um, I mean, people live there, right? Like Kynes, Kynes is not a Fremen. We just established, but Kynes has the blue eyes, and there are several. Yeah, it's 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 from the diet. It's not um, genetic. Hmm. Okay, so it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a Fremen. Because I think that that bit confused me. I thought that Fremen were the natives and that they have the blue eyes. But it seems that Fremen are a specific type of people. And not all natives are Fremen. But all natives have the blue eyes, including the Fremen. Um, Well, I think it's just unavoidable. They say like, oh, it's interesting to have these Caladan dishes. I must have the recipe. Um, You get so used to the spice and everything. So I think if you're on Mm -hmm. the internet, you just spices like in your coffee, in your food, in your drugs. It's just it's everywhere. Does the book explain to us so far what is the difference then between just anyone who lives on Arrakis and Fremen? Because I seem to have missed that. <laughs> I don't think so. I thought Nothing. that those were the same, but you might be reading more closely than I am. I mean, I think there's the native population, and then every time there's this changeover, like, you know, the emperor sends in his his goons, and, you know, new people come and live on the planet, get the blue eyes, and either stay or leave. Um, oh, you know, I see. Okay. It. So Kynes, if, not, if he's not a Fremen, is not native to Arrakis. Could be. He works for the the emperor directly, right? Yeah. Okay. Maybe he was sent there, and he he seems to have like a very specific job. Yeah, he's a planetary ecologist. Yeah. Although he doesn't seem to be (laughs) like he specifically has been told to ignore certain things. So you know, everyone seems to have their own their own game. Wasn't there like a bit about like how the Fremen actually move through the desert? Like they can move like super quick or something. I think they mentioned that. Yeah, that's when When Paul identifies 
pe- uh, people running away from the site where the where the sandworm came in and destroyed everything. And he noticed their movement patterns were a certain way to avoid um, disrupting the sand, I guess, in a certain way as to prevent the sandworms from detecting their motions. Yeah, they talked about like the drum sand, like where it's like mm-hmm. if they move over it, like they can pick up the vibrations. And there was also in that moment, also Kynes was fascinated that Paul was able to readily identify the Fremen. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So it goes both ways. Like they can identify him, that he can like tie his still suit and he can identify them at the same time. And that, yeah, I thought like overall, like the, 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 going back to like what Priya mentioned about the sandworm part, like the, the kind of build up to that, I thought was like really good. Like the suspense of like, oh, we're going to see a sandworm finally. Like what's the that going to be like? Sandworms are awesome. Yeah. But we didn't see much of it, right? We only saw like the, the mouth opening and swallowing it. <laughs> swallowing I think the... they were hinting that people who see much of them don't tell a lot of stories. Right. And it's also interesting, like they, it seems like the planet is like, unexplored mostly they talked about like the the southern um uh, mm. deserts being like unexplored but they have like planes and helicopters or whatever um, but they keep know. saying that they don't so like last episode um sufi was saying like satellite control is too expensive for us and like how expensive is it and he's like yeah he was just telling me it was too expensive for us so like there's something about long distance observation that they don't seem to have yet but like they definitely have helicopter or whatever, whatever Lita was driving they call it like what uh what was it kind of orthopter or something orthopters, i think yeah so i don't know if it's a helicopter or a plane or combination or whatever it is they, so they have those more right? local like a helicopter not like yeah so maybe they can't they can't just can't go far yeah but then also kinds um is hiding a large water reserve so they may be Maybe they've been discouraged from. Um, That's true. From doing yeah. more more exploration <laughs> as well because they can't mm. find that. Yeah, it could be like a story that they tell to keep people away. <laughs> like, oh, don't go into the right. southern one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But they also have like spaceships. That's how they got to the planet, right? So theoretically, just orbit around the planet and <laughs> take a look at it. You would run the the planet differently. I can tell Dan. <laughs> Exploration, you, you know, that's the that's the primary goal. Like, l- learn the lay of the land. We'll see. Talia probably has all the stuff. You know, like wants this bursting at the seams, <laughs> wanting to tell us all the stuff that happens. <laughs> no, I like reading at this pace. Um, the first three episodes have been really interesting, and I think it's really good to get into the suspense. You know, I feel like I'm dying all the time because um, I want to talk about the scenes for that overlap with the movie and i can't because dan that's because of dan <laughs> that's yeah. always you dan oh, dan like decided girl. arbitrarily that he was allowed to watch five minutes <laughs> I know. Not, but not six six would be cheating yeah i also watched you know uh tali you mentioned the uh the mini series hmm. i watched like five minutes of that too and it's oh, like I thought you were gonna say like five episodes no no five, no five minutes of the I, first episode there was like a what did you say like, i don't remember it and i'm sure i mean doesn't either it, i mean like it it was definitely like special effects of his time i think it was like from like the early 2000s or around that so you can you can definitely tell you can't watch it sober in 2022 that's not fair that's like <laughs> that's like you know tiger woods going to play mini golf you gotta <laughs> give it some but what was actually happening uh they they got the it was just like the the introductory setup same thing i think they started on the the spaceship um like they're already on the way they, they didn't have anything on caladan 
and um oh, they're on the spaceship. and then they 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 had the scene of like the the ringing of the 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 washcloth they had that part and like the oh, they cool. they're telling them like don't we're not allowed to do that anymore and the person got annoyed that they um she couldn't sell the <laughs> the, uh, the, the water yeah. anymore yeah <laughs> There's definitely this like attitude that the Duke has, yeah. It's all this big, uh, this big uh, uh, ecosystem of, of people making money off of water. It seems like exactly the Duke is like, oh, it's like a straightforward morality thing. Depriving right. people of water is bad, therefore I'll stop it. And then someone who is deprived of water is like, oh man, I'm really injured by you not depriving people of water because even though it's an unjust system, I can you know skim a tiny little bit off of the top by right. selling to people <laughs> who are even worse off. Yeah, so I wonder if like his plans of like be, making yeah. all these big changes are gonna like kind of backfire against him because like the, he's the a pretty moody dude in this uh, in this chapter. Keeps brooding yeah. on death. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's like foreshadowing. Uh, you know, I keep talking about his death. Yeah, I mean, mm. and like there was that that prophecy right that he's not gonna live that long. So it seems like he's not not gonna be around for too much longer. And he's, you know, Paul seems to be ready to kind of take the reign. You know, he's already at the head of the table, already like leading the dinner party. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well spotted. He quite literally assumes his father's seat at the table. I think it's some contrivance, like the security notice comes in right at the end and he's like, Oh, Paul, take my seat at this dinner table in front of all the officers and look like right. and then he should he should he should have handed him a torch when he was doing it. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just to really put a bell on it. <laughs> I also love how how eagerly Paul steps into that role because he he sits down and he immediately then after his father leaves proceeds to tell a little story about like just to take a jab at at, at the banker. Um, yeah. Oh my he gosh. tells a story about I was the bring this up. Keep going. Yes, uh, he tells a story about the man about a man who's drowning in water. This is this is where the whole. Um, like he has to define the words drowning. Um, and he describes that, you know, a man who drowned was found with wounds on his shoulders that indicated that another man had sort of stepped on his shoulders to stand to to raise himself up above the water to prevent himself from drowning. So um he said that, you know, uh, he's like, and then no one understands the point of the story. So uh, when someone asks him, like, why the banker, I guess, why is this interesting? He says, well, um, because of something my father said about it, that it's it, it's understandable when a man who's drowning does this. But it 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 comes across very differently if someone were to do this in in the drawing room or at a dinner table. So mm-hmm. um that was just like Paul really getting super cheeky and even Jessica remarks on it like in her mind that like, okay, that was really, um, that was really bold and, and probably unnecessary and necessary. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like he's really, um, like it, it, there are times where you have to question, like, does he have the, the capacity to lead the way that the duke does um is he quite ready for it because yes he does have this plethora of wisdom and quips but does he really have that leadership skill to pair with that wisdom and quips if that makes sense yeah yeah that makes sense um yeah he seems like he's not quite ready to 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 be a leader and like bring people together like the way like the duke is trying to um and maybe like he's being he's a little bit arrogant because of his his powers i'll just underscore that um 
Paul Atreides is a teenager. Right. Um, obviously, he's like close to an adult because the still suit manufacturer's daughter was brought to lure him with sex. So obviously, he's like a man, but he's a teenager. And uh, yeah. I thought the only parent of a teenager on the show could tell us, should teenagers rule planets? <laughs> Absolutely <forward>. not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe like an 18 year old or whatever, but like definitely. We're I don't know. How, how old is Paul? Dan, how how old your daughter, Dan? She's fourteen. She's definitely so she's cannot. almost Paul's age. Oh, okay. Age rule is is Paul fifteen? Is that what it was? 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no. <laughs> so resoundingly, no. In in the year ten thousand one hundred and seventy something, but he is still fifteen. But man, I don't know. Maybe like the different different teenagers have different. You know, like people. I guess there are different. There are like really responsible teenagers and like teenagers that are already leaders at that point like they're doing a lot of things but like that's pretty much the exception right i mean paul maybe is the exception here but he has all special powers but he also has like a you know a teenage brain uh, so. right and and earlier in the book didn't he say he was burdened with terrible purpose i think he's yeah. still going through his emo phase so oh. i think he, he he said he didn't want to go to the dinner party to start with right like and then when it first started i think he said he, he didn't want to be there mm, yeah that I would make sense but Jessica is the really the one leading that whole thing up. She's like, this is the best way to ingratiate yourself with the officers, like engage with them socially. Like to her, that's just, that's obvious. Like when the Duke is like, huh, why would I even invite a smuggler? I'm going to ask out loud. And she's like, in case we need to get the hell out of Dodge. What do you mean? Why? Like yeah. it's good <laughs> to have on hand better to have and not need. Like the political context of this dinner party uh is very clear to jessica mm, yeah in ways that maybe are not to a teenager but thank you for your your uh, <laughs> unique opinion on it dan i just want to uh say that i i think what makes the dinner party scene interesting is that all the other characters are kind of there and they're having their own antics. And at, at moments, you also get like little excerpts of like conversations that they're having little snippets, little quotes. And most of the topics of conversation between the dinner guests are all like very surface level and and superficial and like, you know, talk of recipes and different fabrics and stuff. But then you your your mind remains focused on this interplay that's happening between um Jessica and Paul uh this nonverbal interplay and there's so much happening nonverbally at that dinner scene that like Jessica and um Paul are picking up on because of their truth sense and then there's also Kynes picking up on his own observations of of the the royal family uh, or like the duke's family not the royal family are they the royal family i don't know they're no uh, noble born the right? noble family okay yeah. so um there's a lot of uh I, I just find it fascinating when um characters are able to sort of focus in on one another's body language and keep, like keep, take social cues that are nonverbal and make really um, sound conclusions or not so sound conclusions based off of that. So I, I found that interplay between these three characters very fascinating because they seem to be the most perceptive of all the characters um, and everyone else is just sort of background noise at, at that dinner party. Yeah, Jessica was ready for for action there. She had her hand on the knife and everything. It was like she was ready to go. 
right? <laughs> but it was also fascinating how much control Kynes has over this situation in many instances when he doesn't actually have the sort of powers that Paul and Jessica possess, but just this ability to still command a situation and still take back control over a situation or to diffuse a situation um, makes that character very interesting to me. I think in conclusion, we should probably, if, if unless any, anyone has anything else to say, um, in conclusion, I think we should maybe bring it back to the quote that we began with. Um, and if, uh, if you all have any particular um, interpretations of the quote based off of the events of these chapters... I think in part we touched upon it um, earlier in the episode as well, but any like concluding thoughts on that? For me, it's all about the sardonic, separating yourself from your own pretensions. So I actually found a great analysis for this on Reddit that kind of sums it up. Um, someone said, someone was asking for the interpretation of what that quote means and someone just simply wrote, it means sometimes people fall for their own bullshit and, and it ends up biting them in the ass, which is pretty much what I think about that quote as well. But um, if I want to get a little bit more sophisticated than that, I would say that the way that I understood the word sardonic um, as used in the quote is kind of like a healthy cynicism um, or rather being cynical towards one's own sense of greatness and deriving from it a keen awareness of that, of the impermanence of that greatness. Because um, I think it's very fitting um, where you chose to end us off um, in terms of the reading section for this this episode, because it ends where Jessica notices Paul being kind of boastful. Um, and in her thoughts, she cautions, he shouldn't boast. No person who will be sleeping far below ground level this night as a precaution against las guns has the right to boast. So um, it's almost like that Icarus myth again, like fly too close to the sun and you're going to come crashing down. And um, I think that that's the essence of the quote, that um, you'll reach a peak in your greatness and unless you're self-aware you're not going to last very long in that place. That, yeah, that's a million times better than I would have interpreted that quote. So I will leave it there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes in the reading list. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at festmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. Please join us next episode for season seven, episode four, covering book one, Dune, chapter 17 to 23 of Dune by Frank Herbert. <laughs>